Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. People love to talk about what they want to do, what they should do, or what they believe is right. We love it. We go online to brag about it and to cajole each other. Everyone is a fake preacher. We give lip service to lofty ideals, lying to ourselves and to each other, pretending to be people of great deeds, but our words, like our promises, are empty platitudes. No, they are worse than that, because when we cast our vanity on the world, we lift ourselves up at the expense of those whose suffering is actual. This is the banality of evil, and we are living it. Unlike our lofty ideals, the crisis of poverty, the vile stench of greed, the abyss of human ignorance, the plague of hatred, and the scourge of violence that now threaten our country are not theoretical. Those of us who hear the Lord's teaching must not talk about what we want to do or what should be done. We must act as we have been commanded. For the Lord said, Do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. This week's episode is presented in loving honor of the victims of the synagogue massacre in Pittsburgh. May they find rest with all the saints in the bosom of Abraham, and may their memory, in fellowship with the righteous teaching for which they died, be assuredly eternal. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 250 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Every time I marry a couple, one of the things I appreciate about the text that we use in our tradition is that there are no vows. And implicit in this stance taken by the liturgicist is the understanding or the premise that human promises are empty promises. When you stand before the Holy Gospel, which is read to you on the day of your wedding, it is the teaching of the Gospel of John and the epistle of St. Paul to the Ephesians that establishes the bond between the couple. It's the teaching of Jesus Christ that makes the bond a community, a household in the biblical sense, in the spirit of the New Testament, not human promises. And so I'm always excited when I come to this section of Matthew chapter 5. Everything belongs to God, the present and the future. So who are you to promise anything? You don't know if you're going to make it across the street without a bus hitting you. 
how are you then going to swear upon the heavens or upon the throne of God or anything? Because not only do those things not belong to you, but your future itself does not belong to you because we do not have that kind of control. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. This is an instruction that is indicated in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So this is something that is woven through the fabric of the Pentateuch, of the Law of Moses, and is obviously critical to the instruction that the Lord is giving his presentation of this law for the Gentiles. The reason why this is woven throughout and the reason why this is so important is because if you say you're going to do something for the Lord, then you've bound yourself to it. You can't say, okay, God, I'll think about it, or okay, God, I'll see if I can get around to it. If you say you're going to do it, you do it, and it's that simple. It's what Matthew will talk about when he criticizes those who say, Lord, Lord. The Lord is on their lips. They're praising him, but their deeds are far from the instruction of the Lord. Everyone talks about what they want to do or what's important to them or what they care about, and then they go on Facebook and post messages about, for example, the ugly horror of anti-Semitism, which we all saw on full display this week. But who's actually making the effort to understand their neighbor, to take action on the instruction to reach out and interact with those who hate us? Who is doing that? It's easy to talk about how you disagree with a certain worldview. It's very difficult to confront a hateful worldview with love. And I dare say that those who were massacred this week were trying to confront hate with the action imposed upon them by the Lord's commandment to love the needy neighbor, especially in the person of the immigrant or the sojourner. So we have a lot to account for when we say, Lord, Lord, in the Gospel of Matthew, but don't act on his commandment. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. This echoes, Richard, what you said just a moment ago, that since you don't possess any of these things or control any of these things. I mean, Matthew is taking you in classic form, as you hear often in the Psalms, from the heavens all the way down to the earth, which is a way of indicating span or breadth of dominion. The Lord is the one whose dominion stretches from the heavens all the way down to the lowest parts of the earth, his footstool. And the city of the great king that he refers to in verse 35 is actually taken from Psalm 48. And again, it's not about the Jerusalem that we find in Palestine, a piece of land that you can locate on a human map. It's about the heavenly city, which at the moment is where the Lord Jesus Christ is seated in power, giving his Father's instruction. One would swear by the heavens, by Jerusalem, by the earth, that they would do such and such a thing. But how can you swear by such and such a thing when you don't have control? You don't get to say what is going to happen with those things. If you say, by the earth, I'm going to do such and such a thing, okay, you don't do such and such a thing. What are the consequences? You're going to hand over the earth to the person you swore to? Of course not. By making such grand gestures, you end up making your words empty. What's beautiful about how Jesus has gone from, you have heard, 
But I tell you, and the kind of movement that he makes throughout the Sermon on the Mount is the first movement is if you swear something, you have to do it. But in fact, if you don't have control over the future at all, how do you dare even swear anything? How do you promise anything? The individual speaking feels they have control. They feel they have some dominion so that they can promise something that's going to happen. When in fact, Jesus puts that person in his or her place, knowing that you have no control over the future. You have no determination about what you're going to be able to accomplish and what you're not going to be able to accomplish. By no means are you allowed to promise the heavens or the earth or the great city as a consequence for not fulfilling your vows. He shows how empty those words are, however grand they sound. And the example of marriage, Richard, isn't just pulled out of the air. It flows very nicely from the previous verses that deal with the question of fidelity, adultery, and divorce. The whole point here is that if you make a vow to be faithful and then you're not faithful, you're bound to something you can't fulfill and you are shutting out the Lord's mercy because of your trust in your own word. Whereas if you simply accept that the Lord has established your household by his word, there's a chance that when you fall short, he will show mercy. You're not really proven married on the day of your marriage any more than you're proven baptized on the day of your baptism. We will know whether or not you were truly married. We will know whether or not you were truly baptized on the day of your death, when the meaning of your life is revealed to all those who bear witness to your eulogy. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. You have no control. Now, even if human beings one day come up with a way through genetic engineering, which I'm sure they already have, to control what color your child's hair will be and so forth, that's not the point. Don't go down the rabbit hole of irrelevance, which is what Facebook has become. It's Huxley's rabbit hole of utter irrelevance. Just understand the point Matthew is making, that you have no control. So don't make promises you can't keep. Just be humble. Don't be prideful. Keep your place. We move, like you said, Father, before, from these grand heavens all the way down to the head of the person speaking, movement from the heavens all the way down to the earth. And you took the words right out of my mouth. You have no control. Not only do you have no control over the heavens, you don't even have control over your own head. You have no means by which you can swear. And this is what is beautiful about how Jesus pushes these laws to their logical extreme. It's not about who you sleep with. It's about who you're faithful to when it comes to marriage. It's not about whether you do what you say you're going to do when it comes to making oaths. It has to do with being faithful to the one who controls the heavens and the earth, who has numbered the length of your days. It's being faithful to that one who actually has control rather than trying to sound like you have control when you're talking to your neighbor. True faithfulness to God is recognizing how we are utterly helpless. We are utterly without strength, but we still have a duty to fulfill the law that was given to us. And it just comes back to that point again and again and again. And as we said in the last episode, Jesus pushes us in the direction of love every time.
earlier when we went through the Beatitudes, we discovered that for Matthew, the litmus test as to whether or not a person is obeying the Torah, the proof, as it were, the proof that we find in the pudding, is their suffering. And I just want to memorialize those who were murdered this week in the synagogue massacre in Pittsburgh. These are individuals who heard the call of God's instruction and were making every effort to take care of the needy neighbor. And those who had ill will towards them understood their gesture of obedience to the Torah as something threatening, and they were murdered. This is technically why they were murdered, for taking care of the needy neighbor and the immigrant and the sojourner, which means that these Jews fulfilled the instruction of the Gospel of Matthew in giving their life for the deed of the Torah. And that's so important, Father. I'm so happy you brought that up because coming up in this passage, the next chapter, we'll hear about how all of your acts of piety have to be done in secret. The one thing that's on display in the Sermon on the Mount is the suffering and the mistreatment you get. That's the only thing you're allowed to show as a sign of your piety is the rejection by other people. When we see the suffering that others are doing on behalf of the righteousness of this teaching. It has to put us to shame because we say, how come they work so hard to fulfill this teaching and I'm not doing nearly enough in order to spur us along? Now, we don't make an oath. Oh, by the heavens, I will certainly carry out this Torah. You simply perform the actions knowing that the number of your days is in God's hands. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, anything beyond these is of evil. This, in my mind, harkens back to the Lord's confrontation with Satan when he was tempted in the wilderness because Satan was trying to give away something that didn't belong to him. That's why anything other than accepting your place as one who can either say yes or no, but nothing more, going beyond that is from the devil. That's the point here in Matthew. Satan had no right to offer anything to the Lord Jesus Christ because everything is under the dominion of the one whose throne is in the heavens and whose footstool is the earth. So you are, in fact, stepping out of bounds when you make an oath. We are nothing, and we deceive ourselves, as Paul teaches us, when we think that we are something. The connection you make, Father, with the scene in the wilderness between Satan and Jesus is fantastic. I mean, thinking that we have control over what we don't is the source of evil. I mean, the word is ektuponiru, from evil. This is precisely the evil that later on in Matthew we'll hear that we ask God to protect us from, keep us from evil. This is exactly the evil that it's talking about, because the evil is that I have control and I don't need God. Because if I can control whether I am healthy and well-fed, I don't need God. But the corollary of that is if I am in control of making sure that I am healthy and well-fed, I will do whatever it takes to make sure I am healthy and well-fed, even at the expense of my neighbor. I will do whatever I need to do to make sure that I fulfill that vow, even at the expense of the other. Because I don't recognize that if it happens, it is God's will, and if it doesn't happen, it is God's will, and I just have to keep doing my thing according to the obedience of the Torah.
the source of all evil is thinking, I can, I will, I desire. Obedience is God wills, God can, God desires. This is the source of good and love. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, before we go on to verse 39, Richard, I want to say something about this very critical instruction that appears in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Again, another critical teaching that is too readily dismissed by modern theologians as being arcane or somehow backwards. They misunderstand what Jesus is teaching in Matthew, because the instruction an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is very much like Moses' certificate of divorce. It is given because of the hardness of our hearts to keep us from stumbling, to put a cap on our stumbling. Because if you look, for example, at the tragedy of conflict in the world, we have the example most recently of Jews and Arabs in the Holy Land, but there are plenty of examples all throughout Europe and all throughout human history of groups feeling victimized by each other and going back and forth tit for tat. This is part of what human beings do. It's one of the deformities of our survival instinct, to be frank. And the Lord in his wisdom in the Torah said, look, you can't just keep going back and forth. There has to be a limit. That's the spirit of the instruction. And of course, in the same way that people distort all biblical instruction, they distort this teaching to be a justification for unending violence, and that's a misreading. And that is the spirit in which Jesus is now clarifying, as he did with respect to divorce, clarifying the meaning of the instruction. No more than an eye for an eye. No more than a tooth for a tooth. If someone gets their eye put out, they aren't able to kill the other person. They aren't able to take both of their eyes. It's one for one. Because here's what happens when you don't follow even this basic, simple teaching given because of the hardness of your heart. For the last 15 years in this country, we've been deciding at what point is it okay to preemptively destroy a country before they even attack. We attack and we justify the attack when we haven't even had an eye taken out. Not a single eye has been taken out, and we're trying to debate whether it's okay to attack or not and kill them. Even this teaching, don't dismiss it for its justice value, because it still has value in just keeping people civil. It's like Miss Manners says, you have laws to keep people from doing things, but you have manners so that people can actually get along with each other. This is the law. You know, at least this is the line we say you can't go past. Manners is how you act correctly with other people. But the law is how far you may not go. And that's what this is. This is the law. You may not take more than was taken from you. I love your example because if everyone who gives lip service to how backwards this commandment is and how enlightened they are, if only all of us who talk this way and think this way could at least pass muster with this commandment, the world would be a better place. I mean, think about the absurdity of people who talk as though they're doing what they should be doing. It's very much linked to this idea of lip service and saying that this is what I want to do. Well, wanting to do something and doing something are not the same thing. They are not the same thing. 
there is a big difference between wanting to do something and actually stepping up and producing a deed. And we can't, we cannot produce the deed that lives up to the commandment outlined in verse 38, because all of us take more than an eye for an eye and much more than a tooth for a tooth. So when we criticize this teaching, we fall squarely under its condemnation. And that is Matthew in a nutshell. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Dr. King overcame the tyranny of oppression by submitting to it. It's as simple as that. It's uncomfortable. No one likes to hear it. But the fact of the matter is, Dr. King chose to humble himself before his oppressor, and he won over the oppressor. The oppressor was kept at bay and in some places forced to rethink their attitude and their behavior. We will never solve the problem of anti-Semitism in the United States by just trying to wipe all these people out or fight them or push back. It doesn't work. Just ask Amel Abdel Nasser how things turned out in Egypt. You cannot fight fire with fire. The solution, and I'm so thankful for the witness of this synagogue in Pittsburgh, the solution is to continue to love your neighbor, to not fight evil with evil, but to get up the next morning, open the scroll of the Torah, hear the instruction, and try to live it out yet again, day by day by day, and to allow the Lord, who has dominion over the heavens and the earth, to be the one who makes the decision of who is judged and who is shown mercy. When you look at the Greek, it fits very interestingly with the last passage because it says, do not resist evil, mi antistine to poniro, which is the same word for evil that was just in verse 37. Saying more than yes comes from evil. But you are not allowed to stand against evil, which seems strange. I mean, of course we want to stand against evil. That's what we're supposed to be doing, right? No, because these evil things that come in this world are not to be given any notice. It's like the conversation we were having on Saturday night, whether evil exists in this world and how we have this struggle between God and evil. There is no struggle between God and evil. There's the struggle between evil and and God inside your own heart because you're trying to decide whether to do God's will or whether to do your own will. When you recognize that this person who took your eye or took your tooth has power, then you have to resist him. But if you say he has no power, God alone has power, you don't need to resist him. You only continue to do what the Torah says we need to do. Resisting evil is resisting the evil of your heart, not the one who took your tooth. We continue to allow ourselves to be mistreated by this world because, as we saw in the Beatitudes, this is the sign that we may be on the right track. And here, Richard, I'd like to end today's episode, which is dedicated to the memory of those who were murdered this past week. I'd like to end this episode by making an appeal to our listeners to hear the call of the Gospel of Matthew. This is your calling your calling is not something you feel. It's not something you reflect on because you're trying to figure out what you want to do. The call is the call of this text that we are reading together and studying together. Hear the call 
and seek out those around you in your community, whether in your family, in your church, in your neighborhood, at work. Seek those people out who are given to cruelty or hatred and don't argue with them. Love them, bear witness to this teaching in your dealings with them, and continue to draw upon the wisdom of the gospel to shape your interactions with them. And I mean you have to seek out interactions with people that your life coach tells you you should dismiss. Your life coach is an idiot. Because if you keep dismissing people who make us uncomfortable, you're kicking a can down the road that we will not be able to solve. Seek out those people and find a way to interact with them and love them and submit to them for the cause of the gospel. And your father, who sees what you do in secret, will reward not only you, but all of us openly in anticipation of his kingdom. To him be the glory and the dominion and the majesty. Christ is in our midst, Richard. He is and ever shall be. the bible as literature thanks for listening the bible as literature is a production of the ephesus school network